actually from England, a journalist by profession, and he runs mindfulness uh, training courses. Uh, which you've been doing for four years. Understand? I've been teaching four years. Teaching yeah. for four years. Uh, he came out to um, Zimbabwe, uh, attended Rob's at a 10 day retreat at Inyanga with a couple of us who are here this evening, and has been pulled in to do a talk at Chisapiti, uh, this talk this evening. He did a full day's retreat at Rokta on Sunday. Uh, a couple of you were at that, I think, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. So we've been keeping him very busy. And we will be very sorry to see Alistair go on Thursday, but we really hope that he'll come back uh, to Zimbabwe because he's still in our hearts. So, um, Alistair, over to you. Thank you so much, Pam. And is somebody doing this? I'm tapping myself there. Let's start with a little uh, sitting just to. So, if you want to get yourself nice and comfortable. you can come a bit to the forward the front, that would be quite nice. I don't feel so lonely up here. So if we just want to get comfortable in our chairs, maybe feet flat on the floor, hands on our knees or not weighing our shoulders down close our eyes Let's just take a moment to allow our minds to catch up with our bodies after our busy days running around. Here we are in this space, sitting in this chair. So just allow our minds to suffuse into our seated bodies. We can use our breath to do that, to bring us all together. So just be aware of our bodies, be aware of your ten toes, and your ten fingers and thumbs. Your legs and your arms. big trunk of your torso with all the stuff going on in there, your heart and your digestion, lungs.
be aware of your shoulder and neck and if you've caught up any tension in there today just use your breath to soften and relax What about the lovely ball of your head? What's going on in there? Your <coughs> eyes and your tongue and your jaw? Any tension? As you breathe in and out, just allow your whole body to tingle into presence. You become fully aware of it sitting here in this room. Gently spring, swing your awareness into your senses, what's coming in through your sense portals. Eyes are closed, enjoy the blackness or the colours projected onto your eyelids. Just enjoy the absence of sound, just a hum. about your emotional being, what's happening there, you may have had a busy day, but how are you feeling right now, positive or negative, or any elaboration on one of those? about your thoughts, what sort of thoughts are ducking and diving in your mind, busy frenetic or perhaps a little more spaced out, you turn your awareness to be aware of what kind of thoughts you're thinking.
And just allow this thought to arise that our efforts to explore mindfulness and come here this evening and do our practice is one of the finest things we can do with a human life to call forth these qualities of mindfulness, attention, investigation, kindness, compassion, joy. So we can allow our mind to become bright with that fact that we are trying, our intention is good. Intention is half the battle. We're facing the right way, every step counts. Just gently return to the breathing, the simple in and out of the present. Just enjoy the, the simplicity of being here right now. tell you how wonderful it's been being in Zimbabwe. Well, I'm going to tell you how wonderful it's been. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you probably know, I came here slightly accidentally. So I was planning to go to South Africa and then California, and then Groover uh, persuaded me that this was where it was all happening. And you know, she was right. <laughs> I've been practicing for about uh, nine years in various traditions, um, mainly in a Buddhist stream. Um, and Zimbabwe is a great place to be interested in the mind because England, where I, where I live, and London, where I work, is very full. Everything is chock-a-block. The space is full, people's minds are full. Things are difficult to get going. It's difficult to make your mark because everyone is jostling for space. Here in Zimbabwe... There's a lot less people, there's a lot more space, and beautiful space at that. But the thing that really fascinates me about Zimbabwe is the enormous and accelerated and dizzying change that's going on. I see all around me people who have had to let go of a great deal. Their lifestyle for many, many years has suddenly been swept away. People whose health has just been destroyed children whose families have been destroyed. And in certain contexts, all those things seem terrible. Change, from a certain standpoint, seems a, a dreadful thing. But from a mindfulness standpoint, change is, is normal. Change is what the world is. And in fact, clinging to security, building our little nest, is, is problematic because 
when we're stuck in our nest with the big high walls and, um, and no desire to leave it, we don't experience life. And the one thing I can say about Zimbabweans, they are really experiencing life at the moment. <laughs> and that's, um, that's tremendously inspiring because a lot of people, and a lot of people in this room, are doing incredible things in the face of great change. And it's almost like the change inspires people to, 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 to bring that, that out of themselves. You know, when I see some of the work that happens in Rockpo, when I see some of the work that happens at Chedza, all over, everywhere in the country, people are creating solutions to problems. And in a way, that brings out the best qualities in people. And that's, that's really inspiring to be around. And I'm about to go back to England and, and help set up a, a, an organisation that with Rob Nairn, in fact, who um, promotes mindfulness, teach mindfulness, trains in mindfulness. And I've learnt so much from being here, from you guys. So much. So thank you so much for that. It's been a real treat. You will be phoning us for advice. I will. <laughs> a hotline to Groover. <coughs> and this evening I was zooming and ahhing. I spoke to 116-year-old girls at Chisapiti Girls School this morning. quite daunting. <laughs> Which is quite daunting. Um, and I was thinking, oh, what am I going to talk about? You know, cabs. You know, Rob's been speaking for four weeks. All these people coming, and it's a hard act to follow. And um, the tradition that I, I trained in, I, I, uh, I am a Buddhist, and I trained in a tradition that's not the Tibetan Buddhism that um, Rob and Pam Groover follow. It's um, it's to do. It's from Thailand. It's a Thai forest tradition. Um, I don't know if anyone's been to Thailand here, but. Um, Thailand has been a Buddhist country for many years, and there's a very sort of, I shouldn't say this, but a sort of fat cat um, Buddhist section as well. Like all young men go into monasteries like people go into the army you know, in certain countries. So they do their two years in the monastery, and then they go off and buy their cars. And, like and so the city monasteries are quite, you know, they're pretty cushy. Go on the arms round, they get all these cakes and biscuits and so on. <laughs> and you see that and you think, well, it doesn't seem terribly spiritual. But um, in, the eight, in the 70s and 80s, there was a big renaissance in, in Thailand where people went back to the, to the very kind of bare, bare wire of mindfulness practice. So they got rid of everything. They went back to a very, very simple, very austere um, form of mindfulness, or Buddhism. And that really appealed to me, and I went and studied in that tradition. Um, and, it's, and it's very simple, which is probably why it appealed to me. Um, and I, I found that that's really wonderful. And in that tradition, there's a um, after ten years, the the, the bhikkhus, the monks, have become what they call ajans, which means like a teacher. And they're expected to give these dharma talks, these talks, these off the cuff talks, to the community and to the you know the people in Thailand. And um, it's got to be an hour without notes. And um, it's a big, you know, some people love it, love to talk. Talk for an hour, I can talk for two hours. Um, but some people are terrified, and it's the most awful initiation rite. And um, I was saying to Pam on the way here that one of my, a very good friend of mine who was a, a monk here, got to the 10-year mark, and he was absolutely bricking it because he had to give this talk in front of all his peers, including the really great... Um, uh, teachers and he, he gave me a recording of the, the talk he gave 
And it was the, one of the most mo- moving, I've listened to a lot of these hour-long talks, it was one of the most moving talks I'd ever heard, because for the first ten minutes he was completely silent. <laughs> and then he kind of stuttered and giggled a bit, and then he went, oh, I'm so scared. And then there was another few minutes silence, and then some chuckles from the audience. And, then, and it, he was there, he st- stuck out a whole hour um, and sort of said a few really charming things. But in many ways, that was the best Dharma talk I ever heard because he was completely authentic. <coughs> and one of the great things about mindfulness, the things that really excites me about it, is it's about being human. It's not about being ideal. <clears throat> a lot of, uh, you know, I've struggled with a lot of these ideas for a long time, but one of the things that I think haunts and curses as in the West, and I'm being very general when I say the West, is the ideal uh, is idealism. Idealism has been around since you know Socrates, Plato, the idea that somewhere out there there's a perfect version, an ideal form. And I think that is I don't use this word lightly, but evil. I think that idealism is the root of so many problems in the world because it takes us away from what is happening and what is human, what is real, and it forces us to be unhappy with what's going on and look elsewhere. It takes us out of the present moment and it puts us in an impossible place that doesn't exist. And for me, the genius of mindfulness, and all of these practices, and it can, you know, it's in many, many religions, many, many philosophies, is when it leaves idealism behind and it gets down to what's real. And the thing that attracted me to, to mindfulness and, and Buddhist practice was radical honesty. It's radically honest. We sit there on the cushion or we walk the walking path and we say, this is happening right now. God, <laughs> what am I going to do about it? So not only is it two parts, not only is it radically honest, but it also is a spur to skillful action. And this is the thing that a lot of people go, oh, you Buddhists, or you meditators, all you do is sit around on your ass while everyone else is starving. And... But the point is that until you see what is really happening, you're always going to mess things up. Because if you start going, well, none of that's really happening, because in an ideal world, nobody would be starving, and nobody would be this, and nobody would that then you're never going to get your hands dirty and actually help any of those people because you're so busy kind of looking for the utopia on the horizon. And the history of the 20th century has shown us you know, exactly what happens when we put our money on utopias and ideal forms like this. So what I, what I think is really exciting about the, the, renew, the resurgence of interest in mindfulness is that we're returning to reality. It's like we're waking up. You know, for those of you who are interested in, in Buddhism, the word Buddha means someone who's awake. You know, we've been sleeping in this kind of haze of like, oh, it should be like this, it should be like that, in a forest of shoulds. But actually, when we wake up, we go, okay, this is what's happening right now, let's do something about it. And then, you know, healthy, useful, compassionate action happens. One of the first ever books I read when I started to meditate it was by this wonderful, wonderful um, Zen teacher called Charlotte Yoko Beck. I don't know if someone ever come across her? Charlotte Yoko Beck. Charlotte Yoko with a J Beck. 
and she's an old when you see a picture of her when you, when you see a picture of her she looks like an old sweet smiley granny housewife from San Diego she's, a, she's in it I mean, she must be in her late 80s now but she set up she wasn't she, had, she, had a, she was a single mother and she sort of brought up two kids and she became interested in, in, in Zen Buddhism back in the Sixties or seventies, and then you know trained and trained, and then she got tr what they call transmission, where she became a teacher. Um, and she set up this, this in San Diego. She set up the Zen Center, and would, you know, had lots of followers. And some of her talks are written down. There's a wonderful book if you're interested called Everyday Zen. And she's a kind of game old bird. She doesn't mess around. She's like cut straight to the kind of quick. And um, there's lots of really wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's well worth looking at that book. Um, and one of the things she said that really stuck with me, she said, the only thing you can be sure of in life, in this great unchanging, fluctuating world, the only thing you can be sure of is that things are the way they are. And on one level that sounds like one of those annoying koans, but actually that's actually the, the key for me of mindfulness is that the only thing you can be sure of, the one thing you can rest in, the one thing you can grasp at when everything is going wrong, is right now, things are the way they are. And that, strangely, is an, an enormous relief. Because we don't have to do anything to make them other, we just have to work with what we've got. And I found that so inspiring. And that's always sort of <clears throat> been the thing that's excited me about mindfulness, that it's, it's working with what you've got, and it doesn't make you feel bad about what you've got. It's not sort of like saying you should be something else. But you are what you are and do something useful with it because we're not around for very long. So that's, that's the reason why I, th I think that mindfulness is, is wonderful in any context, but particularly here. Um, I'm not going to speak for an hour and without notes <laughs> because I, I don't really like to kind of just drone on at the front. But I do like to, um, to kind of be useful and so I thought what might be nicer is, I've got two options. I like to give people options. I've got two options. <laughs> One is a sort of lucky dip option, where some options have already kind of been uh, chosen for you. And the other one is just to kind of to talk generally about some of the things that are important to you, or some of the issues that might be troubling you here in Zimbabwe in 2009, and see whether anything that I've experienced or any, um, any of the stuff that I've done in mindfulness might be of use. So I was just wondering, out of that brief introduction, whether anything that has arisen that might, you might, could spark a conversation or spark a, a discussion. In our meditation, what you said really stuck was, if you're facing the right way, every step you do starts taking you. You know, it's yeah. that's that yeah. sounds good. I must remember. Yeah, it's interesting actually because intention is one of those kind of dreary, latinate words that's kind of quite off-putting. But intention is a really powerful concept. And interesting, the Dalai Lama, when he talks, he says that intention is half of meditation. If you start meditation with your good intention, then you've done half the work. And I can really see the see the um, the sense in that because it's that idea that. If we're facing the right way, every step counts. Um, and in many ways, if you want to be kind of technical about mindfulness, mindfulness is this constant um, interplay of intention and attention. 
two very dry neutral words but that actually those two things are the, the motive force of mindfulness and what I would say skillful living because first of all we have to intend to practice we have to intend to look somewhere we have to tend to do something and then once we've kind of located where we're going to put our attention then we pay attention and the thing starts to roll but we can't just pay attention willy-nilly all over the place because you know life is short and you know, we can't pay attention to everything so the intention where we're going to place our, our attention is, is very important and this is where skillful means comes in. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with this term, skillful means? So in, in meditation practice, um, the, the idea is that we are in charge of our own meditation. Nobody else can do the meditation for us. There are some schools of Buddhism that certainly call on help from other people, but generally in mindfulness we say that we are the masters of our own you know, actions. So the question then arises, well, how do I know if I'm doing it right? And this brings us to this idea of skillful and unskillful means. And in, in essence, it's a very simple idea. It's like a, if you're interested in computers, it's a feedback loop. Basically, you, you start doing something, and then you say at some point, you given point, you say, is this producing the right effect? Is this making me more content, more compassionate, more connected, more liberated, uh, more happy, or whatever your intention was when you sat down. And if not, then you loop back and you go, okay, let's tweak it, let's do something different. Either I'm perhaps I'm doing this too with too much tightness or I'm you know a bit slack or you know whatever it is. And that and that way you learn what works because then if you do feel more that way then you keep on doing it and then the loop gets more powerful. So in this way, you always know you are the, the, the arbiter of whether your practice is successful or not. And, and that's what makes meditation so empowering because you're not going, oh, Mr. X or Lord Y says this and I'm not quite getting up to scratch. It's like, okay, this is working. I'm in, in charge. I'm feeling better. Wow, it's great. Let's do more of this. Or this is not quite right. I need to kind of get some more instruction or try something out or so this is why intention is so important you need to know what you're measuring right or wrong skillful or unskillful and then the attention is the sort of the juice the kind of thing that gets the whole thing flowing anything else kind of Um, if anybody was there, I'm going to repeat something that I said yesterday. Yeah, so excuse me. Yeah, um, it's 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 a very very pertinent question because it's very easy to feel overwhelmed by the suffering of the world, and there's lots of um, lots of teaching around that. 
But the key thing is that you cannot live somebody else's life. You are responsible for your life. You can't overtake the responsibility of somebody else's life. And so the thing that you can work with is the quality of your response. And I was saying that when I was up on Holy Island, which is a beautiful meditation island in Scotland where I teach, and um, Lama Yeshe, who's one of the um, Lamas who runs a monastery in Scotland, that a lot of people here are connected with. Lovely, smiling, beamy, how you imagine a kind of Tibetan Lama to look. Um, he came along and he was on the island. I said, would you come and speak to my students? And they asked all the kind of really awkward questions that no kind of, none of Lama Yeshe's followers would ever ask because they're kind of like really like, Ooh. And why, why does the Dalai Lama eat meat and all those sort of questions um, and then uh, one of them said oh well you know, it's all very well you Buddhists sort of be wishing compassion for all the world and like sitting on your meditation cushions but how do you deal with nine, something like 9-11 what is the Buddhist response to 9-11 or the meditator's response to 9-11 Lama Yeshe beamingly <laughs> he went joy <laughs> and everyone was like say that you know you can't be joyful about something so awful and he said and it was such a brilliant answer he said something like 9-11 causes such suffering so much misery so much pain if you are in this in the orbit of those people if you go to new york and you want to do something the last thing that those people need is for you to be miserable and suffering and upset what those people need is joy what they need is positivity they want love compassion all these things. And, that, you know, that's so true that so often we, in the West, we think that if somebody's suffering, we have to kind of suffer with them. We have to make ourselves just as miserable as they are and then they'll feel happy. And that's just the exact opposite of what people who are suffering want or need. And I'm sure you've experienced that with people who are dying. You know, they, they say, oh, I don't, want to have, I don't want to have all those relatives around because all they do is cry and it's bad enough that I'm dying, but you know, making them cry is just making it all much, so much worse. And so we, do, uh, we are surrounded by enormous um, suffering, but we can only act in the reality that we have. We can only act in the present moment and in the space that we are. And if we get caught up in ideas and the thinking map of Oh, there's so much suffering. It's, again, it's a sort of negative ideal form. There is so much suffering. It's overwhelming. There's nothing I can do. That's just an idea. And that's what's so wonderful here in Zimbabwe. You see, you know, with, with the Chiedza orphanage, which is a fantastic setup. And we went out and we went to visit some families who were you know, directly affected and the caregivers were either dying or very ill with AIDS. And... Um, you know, the idea, you know, when you talk about, oh, AIDS victims, AIDS orphans, it's like just a big label. It's like a big kind of idea. And yet the reality of being in those rooms with those people, you know, dealing with someone who's dying, but also looking after the children and brushing their teeth and sending them off to school and buying some food and making tea. And, you know, that's the reality. And there you can do something. There you can make a difference. And there you can, you know, feel the reality of it. Anywhere else is just paper tigers, really. And it doesn't help anyway, anyone sort of like tearing up paper tigers. You need to kind of get down into the jungle and dance with the real tigers. <laughs> does, that, I mean, does that make any sense? Yeah. 
I mean, essentially, what's so wonderful about Zimbabwe is that everybody is, is doing stuff. You know, that ultimately, mindfulness is about action. It's about skillful action. And people, I see it all the time. People are going, oh, well, well let's just, oh, these bits of clothing, let's give that to so-and-so. Oh, there's a bit of extra food, let's pass that down, you know, doggy bag to Duda because he might be a bit hungry. And it's so inspiring, so inspiring to see that happening over and over again. Because that's real, and not this awful ideal form. Any other? Looks like that's going to be happening in the UK. Yeah, pretty soon we'll all be through passing <laughs> too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going back home. And uh, well, I mean, the thing is, there's terrible, terrible suffering in the UK too, but it's all shut away. I remember going. I was working for um, Age Concern, which is a charity that looks after vulnerable old people. And it was a kind of beautiful summer, summer's day, and I was, you know, in London, trees are out, a lovely meal. And I went to visit this old chap who was a Maltese guy, and his son was a drug addict, and any money that we managed to find, the son immediately stole and sold him. And it was a boiling hot day, and we went to see him, and he was sitting, this is in the east end of London, not even so far out in the sticks, sitting in his room. There was nothing there apart from an armchair, there was a television, but no aerial, and he was watching Wimbledon on this fuzzy picture. This <laughs> and he was totally crippled with arthritis, and he had one lung, and he was smoking a cigarette with a clothes peg because <laughs> he couldn't hold the cigarette. And I was just like, that is the worst... That's the worst... Exp- you know, that's, that was so hard to, to, to just think, can anything be w- worse than that? <laughs> And, it, you know, it's, it's really hard, but that's in the middle of London. That's not, you know, that happens everywhere. The point is that suffering is ubiquitous. It's part of, unfortunately, part of the human condition. But how we respond to, to suffering is really vital and alive. And the, the, the classic thing is that when we respond to suffering with fear, then what we end up with is, is pity. And when we respond to suffering with love, then we get compassion. It's the kind of geometry algebra of, of suffering, and um, it's so you see that so often people just are scared of people who are in pain, scared of people who are starving, scared of people who are on the street. You see it all the time in London. People just closing down because they're scared. They're scared that it's going to be infectious. <coughs> I'm sure we've all experienced that. Someone who's just really depressed. You know. Face going to see them, so you know, I'm going to catch it. <laughs> I've come out and I've caught depression. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't work like that. Um, but it, it is that fear that, that kind of like, ultimately imprisons us, it shuts us off. And compassion is the thing that connects us, and energy can flow. It's another wonderful image that Charlotte Yoko Becker mercilessly rip off her images. But she says that life is like a flowing river. The energy just flows and flows. And what we do is we build dams. This is my bit of river, okay? I'm going to build this dam, I'm going to keep it, keep this water here for me. And all that happens is the water gets stagnant. And she says, you need to just blow out all the sticks and twigs and just let this energy of life flow. And it might be crappy energy, but it'll flow. It won't stick around forever. So, you know, that's the... But that's the kind of that's a great image, I think. Mm. Any other thoughts? Would you mind telling us how you got into teaching and what made you make that decision? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, well, I've been, I've been practicing. I was a very dedicated practitioner, a little too practical, and I did go through a slightly Nazi period of being like <laughs> unbearable to be around, um, which I think quite a lot of people are sort of, because it's, you know, what fanatical converts are like, worst kind. It's like recovered smokers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I practiced very, you know, like twice a day, every day, without fail, and, you know, went on retreats three or four times a year, and went to Thailand to study, and very interested in becoming a monk, and very, just a pain in the butt to be around. You know, I mean, horrible. I don't know how my partners ever put up with me. Well, they didn't. Um, and then uh, I was up on, I've been very involved with this island called Holy Island, which is just the most beautiful place. If you're ever in Scotland and you have a couple of weeks free, then please do go to Holy Island. It's an exquisite place to meditate. And, and I've been going, that's been the common thread through all my practice going up there. And it's a very warm-hearted, um, delightful place. And uh, I've been going there for a long time, and they, they'd gone through a lot of changes. They'd built a beautiful centre, um, and they'd sort of set it up as a sort of interfaith centre. And I, and, but they'd sort of kind of, I thought, sort of lost the, the thing that had attracted me to there because it had a very strong meditative tradition. And they were so keen to get everyone in, they kind of stopped doing any meditation. And I pointed this out to Shirden, the monk who's, who's a South African, who was running it. And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, it's right. There's no, there's no beginner's stuff. And, he, and the way that everybody in that tradition does again, why don't you do it? <laughs> and I was like, well... All I can do is, I mean, I thought it'd be quite good to run workshops because I, you know, I'd done a lot of practice and I thought I'd be quite close to, I'd be near enough to people who were beginners that I could remember what it was like to be a beginner, but also a bit further on that I could help them. And I went to see Lama Yeshi, who's the guy in charge, it's his island, effectively. And he said, yeah, okay, go and do it. And now I think, what on earth was he thinking? Right? <laughs> Crazy letting this, you know person do it but uh, I, you know, I prepared and I did a course and it sort of came from there and one of, one of the, the guiding my ideas was that it, it had to be a workshop you know, I wasn't interested in sitting at the front and you know, delivering I, mean, I tried to do that it just was laughable so I, kind of, I stopped doing that and we do, we, you know, it's always in a circle and we always kind of work with people, problems that people have and it's, it's very hands on and that's, that's been a real kind of successful element of it and, and more and more we're kind of trying to bring that into mindfulness. But for me personally, it's been the most... I mean, it's completely changed my life, because I'm now, by profession, I'm a journalist with the BBC and was becoming increasingly unhappy doing that. It was a very high-profile job, and I'd, I'd chosen it back in the dark days of my 20s <laughs> when I, you know, I needed affirmation. I needed to stand on a pedestal and everyone to go, love, we love you, Alistair, we love you, Alistair. <laughs> And, um, we do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I suppose teaching is a halfway house. Isn't it? And, uh, and I realised that actually that was making me ill because that constant need, and there's great teaching in the mindfulness tradition about that, about the worldly wind, how, you know, fame and disrepute, you have to be able to live with both. And if you're constantly clinging to fame, constantly clinging to praise, then your life is going to be really miserable because you're always going to be blamed and you're always going to fall into disrepute just as you're always going to lose stuff. You can't have just the positive half of the circle. And so it was making me really unhappy. 
and sort of like in this constantly high profile uh, turmoil. And so actually last year when I was up with Rob Nen in Unholy Island, I had this day where I was like, oh, I was just in such a turmoil. It was a great retreat because always the good ones are the turmoily ones. And I went on this very brisk walk, <laughs> brisk walk, brisk walk, and I walked as the island's about two miles long and a mile wide, very beautiful. It was a beautiful day. I was like in this tunnel vision. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but I had to walk. And I climbed up the mountain and I found myself sitting in Lam Yeshe's house. <laughs> Not in his house, in the garden. He's got a very nice little hut, like chalet, overlooking the, the view. And, and uh, he wasn't there. So I kind of parked myself in his garden. Just went, and I suddenly thought, oh, I don't need to do this crappy job anymore. I could just do something useful. It was this amazing feeling of like, oh, I think it's like you've been carrying around a huge stack of manure on your head and you just like <laughs> let go of it. And so I'm actually going to go back and start training as a psychotherapist and, um, and do, you know, working with Rob to set up this thing. So it's, this, although I've been teaching mindfulness for about four years, this is the sort of, I'm kind of finally taking it seriously. So this is why it's been great being here and being so um, um, exploited. <laughs> and love. And love. There was an element of love and exploitation. I'm curious to some of the things you've learned here. You said you've learned a lot. Yeah. What are some of those things that you're going to take away from here that mm. maybe we know as well but didn't know that was worth knowing? Yeah. Well, the greatest thing is compassion. You know, compassion is at the heart of all mindfulness. And compassion is a big word. Maybe kindness is at the heart of all, all mindfulness. Now, and this is the thing that's interesting, that when I was in my Nazi period, <laughs> in the, the, the SS um, <laughs> branch of Buddhism, uh, I, was, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was incredibly unkind to myself and actually to people around me because I had this ideal form of what I should be. And I had actually, I, I went to Brazil and had an extraordinary, you weird, you know, going away to somewhere hot and sunny. Had, had this extraordinary experience with uh, shamanism in Brazil. And I think I needed to just step out of the tradition and go somewhere completely different, do something completely mind-boggling. And that, from that vantage point, I saw, ah, oh, what have I been doing? I've been putting my head in this vice and just turning the handle over and over again. And I realised, you know, what I needed was love. What I needed was, was compassion. And, you know, that was four years ago. And, you know, the journey since then has been so much accelerated because it's had love at the heart of it and kindness and kindness. And it comes, again, from what Rob talks about all the time, it comes from accepting the way you are and loving the horrible, messy, bloody, gory, stupid, idiot being that you are and loving yourself to bits for being all those things. And from that place, everything is possible. And when I, when I come here, you know, um, you know, I learnt a lot on the retreat with Rob about the, the centrality of, of compassion in the whole theoretical um, understanding of it. But when I see people like Pam, when I see people like Dave, and I see people who, people who run the Chedza Orphanage, the thing at Rockford, everything that I see around me, you see people on a day-to-day -day basis putting others before themselves. Because, I was saying this to the girls this morning, that actually... Putting yourself first is so dreary and so limiting and so claustrophobic because what we call ourselves is such a little pathetic sketch of ourselves. 
and that actually when we put others first, you're just making yourself, the capital S, as big as all the people you help, as big as all the places that you see and as big as all the things that you pay attention to. And, and you know, I learn every day a new aspect of the wonder of compassion or kindness or whatever you want to call it, of love. It's interesting, the, the, the motto of Chisipiti is love is the fountain, no, love is the fountain of life. Is that right? Love is the fountain of life, and that's such a beautiful image. That when you, when you, and it just, and there's another actually t- another watery image that I must share with you about this thing that that I remember when I was starting out. I loved as well, which is from the tradition that I, where well, it's from the the Buddhist canon, and this is this idea of kind acts, kindly acts, and he, the Buddha describes that kindly acts are like the rain that falls on top of a mountain, drop by drop. Just one drop of water at the top of a mountain. Then two drops and three drops. And then those three drops form a little trickle. And those trickle turns into a stream. And the stream turns into a brook. And the brook turns into a river. And you don't, there's nothing you can do to stop it. It is the absolute natural order of things. But as the trickles gather and gather and gather, the stream gets bigger and bigger and it becomes a river and it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And nothing can stop that river opening out and losing itself in the sea. And this is the Buddha's images that, you know, just tiny acts of kindness to yourself, to others, slowly build up and build up, and eventually, without you having to do anything and without you being able to stop it, they turn into this huge river and they empty yourself out. So you lose yourself into, well, into nirvana in that case, but certainly into something much, much bigger. And that, that image is so true you don't have to do massive things. But I see every day, I see people just being <coughs> kind and thinking about other people. And you see how it all adds up and how it just dissolves these terribly imprisoning senses of selfishness. But you, you know, and you know, that's the thing I struggle with in London all the time. People are so locked in to their self-needs. Me first. And it makes people so miserable. So miserable. And lonely. And lonely. And unconnected. And un, you know, un, you know, unadventurous and fearful. Mm. This is the great other thing that I've, you know, I've learned, that the, the opposite of compassion and love and all these things is fear. And more and more I'm convinced that that is at the root of everything. That when we look into all of the kind of suffering, all the mental kind of stickiness that we get into, fear is right at the bottom. There's, and you know, in a lot of the work I've done with in Brazil with the, the shamans is about kind of just really plunging headfirst into fear and watching it transform like magic into something very beautiful. And Rob talks about that too. I mean, that is the that is the real magic at the heart of mindfulness is that acceptance. That when you sit in the present moment, aware of what is happening and accepting what is happening, there is always this magical transformation. That what seemed unbearable, transforms into a gift. It's, it's extraordinary. It's the, there's a lovely, I don't have it with me, but it's a lovely, the poet Rilke, the German poet Rilke, has this lovely image. He says that it, in all of us, our fears are like the frog waiting to be kissed. Mm. <laughs> and it's true that there is this, and that is what attention is. The attention of the heart of mindfulness is attending to the, the thing that is presenting itself 
kissing it with, with compassion and watching it turn into a, a, the most amazing gift of the most beautiful princess or handsome prince. So that, to me, that, to me, that is really. I mean, it is something magical about that, and you have to just surrender any kind of logical um, trying to work it out in your head. Just go to the to often to the emotion. Anything else? I don't know how long I've got to speak. It. <laughs> 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 That's half past half past six. <laughs> I don't really know. I suppose it robs you, man, for that. Okay. Right. I've I've never been a I've never really been afraid of dying or death. I don't know why, but um, I don't. I mean, if, you, if you're looking at the kind of philosophy of it, I mean the the school I the school I'm in doesn't have quite the same uh, the school I studied with doesn't have quite the same breadth of uh, theories about what happens when you die. I mean, the, you know, in the in the classic Pali text, the Buddha says, you know. Don't don't think about it. Don't think about, <laughs> think about the present moment and the, your suffering right now, because that's the skills that you're going to need when you come to that that juncture. Right. It's like you know, don't worry about who created the world or where, how it started. You know, that maybe some very enlightened being knows the answer, but it's not relevant. It's um, but there are you know, the, I mean, Rob is the man to ask about. When you see um, cruelty, right? Someone doing something wrong. What you shouldn't just react. Fair enough, but it's very difficult to just <laughs> ignore it and not do something. No, about it, right? no you mustn't ignore or not what do something. Mindfulness yeah. is all about action. I mean, yeah, but skillful action. It's, okay, is that it? You should. Yeah, sort of that was a great. I remember going to see the Dalai Lama talk in London. Mm. That was one of, one of those was it eight billion people in the <laughs> Dalai Lama at the front. He was, oh, came in, smiled as well, sat down. And he was thankfully talking in English because it can be quite. Uh, and he talks in Tibetan, so it goes on. <laughs> but he was just lovely being in the room with him, and um, there was lots of questions. And one man put up his hand, obviously been waiting all year to ask his question. It was like, "What is the essential, essential essence of the Dharmakaya when it's spanned through the eternities of like <laughs> non-existent <laughs> being and transformed through the Buddha Kaya?" This question went on for about fifteen minutes. <laughs> And the Dalai Lama was on, the translator was on. He went, next. And then the next question was this very sweet um, lady who stood up and said, you know, my son is being bullied at school. And, you know, I'm a Buddhist and you know, I don't know what to tell him to do. What should, what should he do? And then, like that. Listen to his... <laughs> it was like, oh, where's the Dalai Lama? So, you know, he's, you know the, the, I guess the lesson of that is that skillful action is what is needed. It's not, this is the, you know, this is the great misconception about mindfulness or meditation, with these things, is that it's about quiet, what they call quietism, about just like doing nothing and just being still and just letting everything happen and, well, I can't do anything about it. It's really the opposite of that. It's about this is really happening right now, and it's happening, and that, and it's changing anyway. Mm. It's a complete illusion to think that you know we can become really quiet so that nothing happens. Mm. Stuff is always happening. Yeah, yeah. But you, know, you don't want to react with anger because it's so no. easy when you see something horrible that you you start off yeah. being quite nice. <laughs> and they won't see your point of view. No, but also, but also, <laughs> also, you know, if anger arises, that's fine. Yeah. 
You know, anger is a natural part of being human, just as yeah, grief and all these things. But you know, it's, it's then what do we skillfully do with anger? Because anger is just energy. It's a form of energy. But it's when anger embodies into kind of habitual patterns, for example, or when, you know, you know sometimes anger does have, you know, create into, into violence. Yeah. But the, the point is then to react skillfully. Okay, now this has happened. Now this is happening. Now I'm punching him. <laughs> you know, at, at some point, there's always a point where you can, when you can come back and be mindful and come back into the present moment. And there the yeah. skillful solution always arises. And that's what is response as opposed to reaction. It's, it's, that, it's that moment of knowing that's the difference and as, as they say it's the, it's the millimetre between heaven and hell mm. just the, the tiniest difference so you can mindfully do it mindfully do it <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Mr. Quir, I can't believe he's waited so long so what do you think is a skillful response if you are actually a victim of uh, violence or oppression. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of extremes here. I mean, one extreme is the majority of Zimbabwean response, which is just resilience, absolute resilience, and just waiting. Mm. And then, you know, violent struggle is the other, is the other extreme. What's the, I mean, is any anywhere along that spectrum? Well, I mean, the difficulty is that you're immediately going, we're now going to a map. I was mm-hmm. talking yesterday about the difference between map and landscape. That you know, when we think we, we we deal in symbols and we deal in maps, but the reality is the landscape. So we we don't want to go to Nyanga and just stare at the map all day. We want to go out and walk in the in, in the mountains. So um, the the difficulty we're dealing with these general things is that we're always kind of trespassing into um, the area of map. And of course, there are sort of like general guidelines, but in terms of you know what do we do right now? Then it always has to be a sort of ad hoc, kind of jumbled together. You know, well, I don't think we are necessarily anyone in this room is necessarily a victim of you know, direct violence or oppression. But I'm thinking, I am thinking for the rest of the people, the majority in this country who are. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I can't speak for yeah. individuals one by one, but I mean, I guess you 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 do what you think is skillful. You you reflect what is happening right now. Be, you know, if you take that moment's pause where you evaluate, trying to do it without preference, which is always difficult, and then you act skillfully. And it might be that you fight back, like the Dalai Lama suggested. That might not be skillful. Um, it's you know, it's a very, it's, it's, it's there are no far, hard and fast rules because as soon as you get a hard and fast rule, then that's when people start killing each other. You know, I'm oppressed, therefore it's all right for me to shoot you. But you know, you're, you're absolutely, it's a very yeah, absolute pacifism again. It's, it's a, yeah, it's but a that's not that's certainly not the answer yeah. because it's an illusion. Sure. Um, you know, Gandhi is the great example. You know, he wasn't violent, but he affected huge change mm. by you know, responding rather than reacting. And you know, there's nothing you know that a violent person hates more than somebody who doesn't react with violence. It's the ultimate violence towards them. Isn't it? Is it half past we finish? I've <laughs> <laughs> got another five minutes. What's the difference between responding and reacting? Yeah, mm, that's a very good question. Oh, this is good. I'm good at this. <laughs> um, so, reaction is when uh, our habitual tendencies kick into action. 
So someone uh, someone does something and we are find ourselves doing something without having really been mindful, having considered. And this always, always reinforces past conditioning. You know, mama used to shout at me and then I used to kind of kind of go into a ball. So now my husband shouts at me, now I go into a ball. You know, it doesn't it doesn't create any f- fresh neural pathways. It's a kind of it's a reflex and it actually comes from the the older part of your brain. There are some very, very primal reactions, you know, because of flight and fight and all those things, which come right in the kind of animal part of our brain. Um, Response is anything where there is a moment of mindfulness or consideration, where something happens, we evaluate what has happened, and then we react skillfully. So in a sense, uh, there is always a pause can be a millisecond, but it, there's always a pause between the event and our reaction or response to it. Oh, sorry, there's no, no pause between reaction. There's always a pause of knowing what's happening before a response. And generally, response leads to a fresh, um, a new um, pattern being set up. Because response is always posited on uh, the unique circumstance that it's happening in. You know, he's shouting at me, but he's probably in a lot of pain, or I understand, or you know whatever. So that it breaks the it breaks the habit and leads to fresh um, thinking. And, and you know, generally, mindfulness is about being responsive rather than being reactive, but not beating yourself up for being reactive because we are. Is that a question about preference mm. or judgment? Mm. middle of the room more than I want to sit on the edge of the room. What, what are we talking about? I mean, that, it, that, that I'm making a bad or good judgment on something, which is a, almost a moralistic, which is a matter. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about do things without preference or without judgment? Yeah, it's a huge, I mean, this is the kind of, of, the, of the, the, the idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness is knowing what is <coughs> happening as it's happening without preference. You know, and the first two are like, oh, I can do that. And then you get to the last one, oh, no, I'm not so sure about that. Because you know, preference is really the key, you know, because it's actually the flip side of preference is acceptance. But what's really interesting, and it's a very good question, is that um, having preferences, conscious preferences, is fine. You know, it's fine to you know, do this or do that or like this or like that. What, what, what is interesting is when your preferences are involuntary um, and, and unskillful because they're limiting. And in a way, of, a good way of doing it is to actually not use the word preference but flip it around, that, um, to think about where shoulds and shouldn'ts live in your life. Um, because should and shouldn't, you know, I should do that, I should not care about where I sit in the room or I should like you know, liking all foods or I should like all people. Now, these are the preferences that we need to work with, not I like Joe more than I like Jack, because that's human. But it's these kind of subtle preferences that are really, really interesting to work with. And they're almost always flagged up to us by the word should and shouldn't. So sometimes the way to get to them, to get to those preferences that condition us, often in an unskillful way, is to look for the word should and shouldn't. 
I should like everyone, shouldn't I, really? I shouldn't get angry. Now, weirdly, that's the preference that we're, that we're interested in, rather than a hate him and I love her, <laughs> because that's very gross in a way. And, that, and in a way, you're quite conscious of that. Most of us are quite conscious of that. But it's actually the subtle preferences that really do us damage. You know, I shouldn't, shouldn't be angry, and then you get more and more repressed and you start having neuroses. You know, I should like everybody, which is kind of impossible. So it's, it's, it's not likes and dislikes. And that brings us into the whole question of desire, which is a very interesting area. But likes and dislikes are not the problem. It's like those subtle preferences, which are essentially negating what is happening. Because as soon as you say, I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing this, then you're out of the present moment into this ideal form. Is it reacting or responding? It's more that you're out of the present moment. You're in this horrible ideal world. And the thing to really notice is, rather than kind of just get into a whole tither about, oh, I've got to get rid of all my preferences, is actually to notice how unpleasant it is to be stuck in shoulds and shouldn'ts. It's just a nasty mind state to be in, like shoulds and shouldn'ts, all kind of like, oh, and oh, and oh, and it's oppressive and you feel bad and guilty and it's just a nasty mind state to be in. And so to rather than just think, well, if I can just, get, if I just let go of those shoulds and shouldn'ts, it's just a much nicer place to be. It's a much nicer mind state to be in. Again, just to say, God, I'm rubbish, but... I'm rubbish, it's fine, today, <laughs> right now. But tomorrow I'm going to be great, and yesterday I was really nice. In the context of mindfulness, it's, you mean the preference is slightly different, has a slightly different meaning anyway, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's about knowing what's happening when it's happening without preference, rather than, so, so you're, you're aware of the, about being aware of the wide expanse of everything without letting your attention Although, you know, that setting yourself that goal of being aware of everything without preference, i.e. without any focus, is quite, quite a tough one. No, of course, of course, but that's it's not really that. It's more, you know, whatever I'm paying attention to, it's fine. The way it is. It doesn't, shouldn't be anything else. But I can still say, I like the sun on my face. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a sensation denying, it's not a life denying philosophy. It's quite the opposite. It's like, I like the sun on my face. Let's really feel it. Let's pay attention. Let's really kind of make this come alive. This feeling of, because of the great the thing that we notice all again and again is like this horrible puritanical thing. You know, I shouldn't be enjoying this. I should be thinking about Buddhism, or I should be thinking about you know Christianity. Well, you know, would the Lord Jesus like this on his face? Or you know, whatever it is that, it's 101 different voices in our head. But the point is that you know it's fine to be human. It's fine to enjoy the sun. We do get caught up in whole, you know, it's probably miserable. <laughs> it's all dealing with suffering, but you know, enjoyment is really key to mindfulness. Um, Alistair, would there be three books that you could say that have helped you a lot? The three most dynamic books that have helped you over the past nine years? Does anything spring to mind? Books, yeah. I don't know, you know, I've read a lot of books. I think. And the books I. Um, and there are some books that have had a major, major effect on me, but quite. I mean, the Everyday Zen is definitely a book yeah, I'd recommend sure. to everyone. It's a great, great, great book. Um, if you're, in, I mean, if you're interested in uh, the technical 
detail of, of meditation. There is a fantastic uh, booklet, which is free, free distribution, that's on the website as well, called Kalyana, which is a Pali word by one of the teachers called Ajahn Suchita, and it's without doubt the best explanation of what happens when we do mindfulness that I've ever read. But it's quite dense. wonderful book. It's, yeah. it's not a Buddhist. Um, Ram Das. Have you heard of Ram Das? Yes. An old kind of guy from the 60s. And his famous book in the 60s was called uh, Be Here Now. And uh, he had a terrible stroke. I think he's, I think he's just hanging in there. We had a terrible paralyzing stroke. He's in his sort of 70s now. And he's completely dependent on carers. And um, he wrote this book called Still Here. <laughs> and it's the most... Um, the most charming, insightful, and profound book mm. that I've read about aging and the effects of change. Um, I think my head, so it must be. Mm. Ram Dass is here. Yeah, and if you um, if you have any questions, running out of space. Please, please contact me. You can go to my website. Mindsprings.org. Now, this is going to be the website that's going to organise all of Rob and I's projects in, in England. But it's got a discussion board with lots of kind of thoughts, and there's also lots of links. And, and you've got my email address there, so if you have any questions or you want to have any of these names, uh, then you can, you can email me. It's up and running. It's up and running, yeah. Mind, hyphen, please don't forget the hyphen, because otherwise you end up at a management consultant site. Mind-springs.org.com. Yeah, the good. Well, thank you all again for coming, and a very special thank you to Alex.